Welcome to Ancient Answers, where we discuss modern issues in the context of ancient writers. I'm Gordon. And I'm Shane. And today we're going to talk about, well, Shane, this is your lead, <laughs> this is your topic. Well, I want a revolution. That's we're going to talk about a revolution. <laughs> yeah. So th this is something I, I sort of thought about a little while ago as uh, an interesting topic, but it actually, upon further research, it proved a heck of a lot more challenging than I was expecting. Because you think revolutions, oh man, throughout history there have been so many revolutions and so many overthrows and, and rebels and, yeah, and re rebellions and revolts and this and that. We're get, they're they're going to have a plethora of things to talk about. Well, first of all, you know, our sort of cutoff for ancient history is anything before the year 1000. Um, so that eliminates a good chunk already. But the really tricky part is that when I started looking into this a little further and a little more in-depth, I realized that there is a distinct difference between a revolt, a rebellion, and a revolution. And when you start looking at it through that sort of context, the revolutionary side of it, the pickings are a lot more slim than you would expect. Especially, I think, when a lot of people think of revolutions nowadays, we think of, uh, A, a song by the Beatles, or um, the American Revolution, the French Revolution. Again, that's a little more modern history than what we're looking at. When we talk about ancient history, full-blown revolutions, not quite as common as you would expect. I would agree with you. Yeah. yeah. So, so just to kick us off... Um, I, I honestly went straight to the Canadian Oxford Dictionary for this one, because, okay, what is a revolt, or what is a rebellion, what is a revolution? So a revolt is a rise in rebellion against authority. Now that in and of itself doesn't mean much, especially because it uses the word rebellion in it, but a rebellion is open resistance to authority, especially organized armed resistance to an established government. Okay, we get okay, a little more got into that. that. Yeah. And then a revolution is the forcible overthrow of a government or social order in favor of a new system. Yeah, and the social order is key because sometimes it represents a revolution in ideas. And that's and that's the thing. To me, it's it's the it's the key phrases in that one are social order and in favor of a new system. And when you look at that, that's where okay, revolutions become a little bit slimmer to choose from than that's revolts right. and rebellions. So now, reading that, my sort of take on this is that, okay, it starts out as a revolt. You know, the, the revolt is essentially the, the spark. And then that gets fanned into a flame, and then, okay, that's your rebellion. And then when the flame burns the whole house down, okay, that's your revolution. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of... <laughs> that's sort a good of, analogy. Right? I thought so. It's sort of, sort of a progression of, of one to the other. So, because of that, again, revolutions are not quite as commonplace as you would expect through the historical context, especially in ancient history. Um, so one thing Particularly I... Particularly with ancient history. Oh yeah, exactly. We, we've got a lot more in more current history, more modern history, mm -hmm. but yeah, I can... Yeah, anyway, yeah, I don't want to... Well, just... just the, um, yeah, like, you're absolutely correct, though. In, in modern history, you do see some more drastic changes, you know, as, you know, as progress progresses it progresses exponentially right you know if you look at technology for for uh, an example it starts off going pretty slowly and then all of a sudden it just takes right off you know we've had more changes in the phone in the last 10 years than we have in the 50 years before it for example right okay yeah um, yeah so if we look at it sort of like politically socially idealistically technologically like that as well i think that there's a pretty solid comparison uh, but one, th one. So just to sort of give an example between the difference between a revolution or a rebellion and a revolution, 
is a lot of people, a lot of our listeners, will be familiar with Spartacus's rebellion. Ah, yes. So, you know, what's that famous line, Gordon? I am Spartacus. There you go. Honestly, one of the best moments in movie history. Even, <laughs> even if people are only familiar with the Stanley Kubrick film from 1960, or there's been a couple of um, Spartacus TV series on the Stars Network yeah, in that's the last right. 10 years yeah. or so. Um, they were pretty good. I quite enjoyed them. Um, but yeah, it's it's very much... Spartacus is a name that's just sort of in the popular lexicon nowadays. Just about everyone, I would expect, has heard the name and has and at least knows, oh, yeah, he was a, a slave in ancient Rome who led a rebellion and, and tried to overthrow the empire and slavery. And that's essentially what it was. Like he, he There was a slave revolt that started up in the year 73 BCE, um, it was the most successful slave revolt in the entirety of uh, Roman history. So the thing was is that we're not exactly sure of what kicked it off. We're not too sure of Spartacus's origins. We know he was Thracian. Um, it's uh, suspected that he had some sort of a military background. But again, we're not positive. Either way, all the sources agree that he was at least a big, strong man. So because of that, he was selected to be trained as a gladiator. He was bought by Lentulus Batiatus uh, and brought to a school in Capua where he was trained. And he just had a lot of disdain for Roman rule. He didn't want to be a slave anymore. And so there was actually a plan for himself and 200 other slaves to escape. But with that many people in on the plan, word leaked. And so... <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> right? It's kind of hard to keep a secret with 200 people who know it. Um... But that was the spark that kicked off the whole thing. So the plan was leaked. He and the ringleaders were going to be executed, so they just fought back. They stole knives and spits from the kitchen, and they just started fighting back within the the um, the camp, within the school. And it was Spartacus and I think 70-some other people who, yeah. Yeah, so uh, Spartacus and 78 others rose up in revolt. They were able to kill their instructors, they were able to kill their captors, and then they fled. And they fled with basically the rest of the slaves from the school to the slopes of Mount Vesuvius where they established a camp and basically tried to figure out, well, what do we do next? Yeah, what do we do next? Word started to spread that, oh, there's a slave revolt happening. Well, slaves started fleeing from the estates nearby and joining with Spartacus, and so, oh, well, his numbers started to swell. So then he started training them as gladiators. And then once they had a small group together, I'm not going to say army yet, but once they had started fortifying themselves and training, well then they started raiding the local countryside, well they started freeing more slaves, and then they started training more people, and again we're seeing this exponential growth. Fast forward a couple of years, Spartacus leads a force of over 120,000 soldiers, he's destroyed three or four Roman armies that are sent against him, and he's trying to fight his way out of Italy. Now he gets to Sicily, right? I uh, I think there's some debate as to what the goal was. The goal was to get to Sicily. Oh, at okay. first, at first, from what I was reading, he was heading north towards the Alps, and then he ended up changing direction. And then it was expected that he would uh, he'd made a deal with Silesian pirates, which they actually go over in the, How in the did movie. How they feed this group of people? Right, one hundred and twenty thousand slave soldiers. It's not like they had former slave soldiers. You know, bag sandwiches for everybody. No, but they. They managed it. They over one hundred twenty thousand men that he led across the length and breadth of the of Italy, and uh, so yeah, they were supposed to go again. Originally, they were going to go north over the the Alps. They didn't, uh, and then they were going to go to Sicily. And the idea was to Sicily or Sardinia. It must be in Sicily because it was Sicily. The final battle was down near Naples. That's right. Yeah, yeah, and um, 
But he, the plan was essentially to conquer Sicily and set it up as an independent nation free of slavery was the plan. But then the Silesian pirates they were supposed to board ships with just never showed up. And then they got bought off. Yeah, well, most likely, right? Especially when it was Len, um, Marcus Licinius Crassus, Crassus that's who was the richest man in the history of Rome who was sent against Spartacus finally. So Crassus and Pompey eventually destroyed Spartacus's army. The slave revolt was crushed. Um, there were, from what I read, there were 6,000 slaves that were captured from Spartacus's army, and they were crucified all along the Appian Way. That's right. And they were left there for years as an example. Um, now this... That this would be such a... That, just pause for a second. What a gruesome <laughs> legacy. Right. You want to go down to the summer vacation, and you want to go south, and you got to go buy 6,000 bodies on oh, the side of the road. Could you imagine the smell, too? Uh-huh. Oh, God. Yeah, that's, uh, that's awful. Um, but Spartacus very much lives in the modern consciousness as this great figure from history and like this very admirable individual. And a lot of people might see it as a revolution. But I've got one question for you, Gord. After the year 73 BCE, were there still slaves in Rome? Oh, yeah. Then it wasn't a revolution. That's right. That's <laughs> there was point. still slavery. So It was a rebellion. It was a rebellion. It, it was, was a very rebellion. large rebellion. It was a, well, it was the biggest rebellion, and again, it was the biggest slave rebellion in the history of Rome, but it did not result in the overthrow of a government, social order. It did not result in a I new think you're system right coming about in. That. So it was a rebellion, not a revolution. I mean, if you want to look at revolution, we put, if we put that at the top rank of sort of these, these, uh, these three R words, you know, mm-hmm. um, comes to mind, I think of only three revolutions in the ancient time. Okay. Uh, One would have been agriculture at the very, very beginning. I mean, that's how human beings began to develop urbanized living environments. Um, I think another revolution would have been the transfer from Bronze Age technology to Iron Age technology Mm -hmm. because it, it needed the actual forging technology to be enhanced so you can get the higher temperatures yep. that itself uh, sparked out a whole change in terms of how military operations were conducted yeah and that would change but I also think something like Confucius mm-hmm. or Buddha yeah those were revolutions in the mind yes that absolutely change the direction of society I mean we would see it later with Muhammad yeah and we would see it later with Jesus or at least with Christians I mean, when Constantine, in fact, just last night I watched the movie about Constantine, um, when he said, I'm going to be a Christian emperor and Christians are going to be the dominant faith now in the Roman Empire, that was a big capital R revolution. revolution. Yes, absolutely. Because it did involve military engagements, but it was a complete change in the direction of society. Yeah. And well, and you're yeah, like you're you're going exactly the way that I was thinking as well when I started looking into this and realizing that revolutions, in terms of, you know, our modern thinking of it, our modern understanding, you know, looking at the American Revolution, the French Revolution, those types of revolutions are quite rare in ancient history. But when you look at ideological revolutions, there's a few more. Though. There's a few more examples to pull from. And little little fun fact: you know okay. that there's only one successful slave revolution. In history? No, I did not know that. Yeah, there's only one. Which one? Haiti. In Haiti? Yeah. Okay. 1803. Because they did win their independence from France, but then the European countries 
completely boycotted them and drove them into poverty. Oh, jeez. <laughs> because they didn't want to admit that racially a group of African origin people could actually defeat your slaves. Yeah. 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 So, okay. But, I mean, uh, granted, slavery was seen differently with more of the material possession aspect as opposed to just generally racially orientated mm-hmm. uh, slavery in the ancient days. Um, but yeah, revolution. I mean, the only other, uh, I think that those, I mean, other revolutions, um, I do think that before the year 1000, I would pin, again, going back, agriculture, metallurgy, mm-hmm. I think Buddha, Confucius, um, Zoroastrian, yeah. the religious So yeah, like a religious umbrella for those. Yep, yeah. yep. Uh, of course, Christianity, Islam. Um, the other, I think, revolutions that took place, I think, I can't think of a political revolution. I mean, Rome going from um, a republic to an empire was, we would probably see it as a backwards revolution. Yeah, that's, it went, that's it, a good it argument, went, actually. It, 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 it did not end up the way it could be. Rome could have survived as a Republic, I, I, at least I adhere to that belief, mm-hmm. had other forces not being taken, greed of certain individuals had yeah. not taken advantage. I mean, put in place, even even the first five or six emperors we call emperors never called themselves emperors. No, they were we first citizens. Yes, they were the first citizens of Rome. That's right. Augustus Caesar never called themselves emperor of Rome. Yeah. That's right. He was always the first first citizen of Rome. Yeah. Uh, as a minute at an administrator. Uh, it was later on that they began to call themselves Imperior uh, as yeah. part of it. Well, Ro- Rome always had this dread fear of tyrants, right? Well, not fear, but just the, it was tyrants and, and the rule of an individual was so against the Roman belief system and psyche that to name yourself as an emperor or king or anything like that was I will dangerous. Th- I will throw in one other revolution, though. Okay. Okay, the revolution that transferred from the Qing dynasty to the Han dynasty. Okay. Okay, so this is sto- not a branch of history I'm familiar with. Okay, so the story mm-hmm. is that the Qin dynasty, um, uh, Quan Shi Huan, that, that's the guy that built the terracotta warriors and a great tomb and was the first emperor of China in the year 2020, two, sorry, 220 BC. So he lasts until he dies. His son takes over, runs for a little while, then it falls apart. Now, there is an official in China who is actually taking a group of slaves to a marketplace when he was ordered to report to the new emperor. But he didn't get the command until quite late and he realized there was no way he was going to be able to get to Ch- uh, Chan An, the capital city, in time. Okay. And he knew that if he arrived late, he would be executed. <laughs> now his name was Bang Li and he realized, oh, I'm going to die if, and it's too late for me to do anything. So I might as well just set the slaves that are free with me, ask them to join my army, and I'll set up a little rebellion. <laughs> oh, Maybe no. I can carve out in the, in the hills of China my own little kingdom and I can avoid being you know, executed by the emperor. Little did he expect that his charisma would expand to the point where he would set off an entire revolution, I would think in classified as a revolution, yeah. where because ideologically... He was able to adopt some of the Buddhist principles for his justification for him declaring himself the new emperor, the new benevolent, yeah. kindlier oh. emperor, because the previous emperor of the previous dynasty was a bit of a bloodthirsty 
guy. And and <laughs> next thing you know, boom, he's got the Han Dynasty working for him. He's got all the little kingdoms <laughs> and parts of China willing to uh, swear allegiance to him. Yeah. And he became the first. And we're, we're going to come back to him okay. in another okay. episode because I think he's one of the overlooked characters in history, of us yeah. who live in the West who don't realize this guy was as brilliant as Alexander the Great. Yeah. But a little bit more diplomatic okay. in achieving the goal of becoming the real first emperor of China. Yeah, I just I just love that that story is just well because I think we've all been to that had that mental struggle where you're like, well, if I'm going to be late for this, I might as well just not show up. He took that to just a whole <laughs> other level. I'm going to be late for this, so I might as well just start my own empire and take, take over everything. <laughs> Well, and, and there was, while doing my, my research, because like I said, I, that's not what I'm, I've been familiar with at all, but that's a fantastic story that I'm going to have to look into. Um, but there is one political revolution that I would argue took place in ancient Greece, and that would be the birth of democracy. Yeah, of course, we've overlooked that. Yeah, that, would, the, that would be a revolution of, of ideology. Exactly. So, and, and very much a political revolution, the shift from you know, oligarchy, tyranny to democracy, where it's the power of the people. So just to sort of shift gears back a little bit. Um, so in, in Athens, it really took place in the year 508, where through a series of complicated steps anyway, I won't get too far into it, but Athens did switch from an oligarchy to a democracy just through, it was Cleisthenes. That's right. Um, he, was ex he was exiled from Athens by his political rival, um, Isagoras, and, but his views were very popular with the common people. So he was actually brought back from exile and uh, on the strength of his reforms that were essentially built to break the political power of the, all the other rival families. Now the irony is that the reforms were meant to break the political power of his rival families, but not his own. Um, and it just sort of got taken a step further. And you know, there's a complete reorganization of how the Athenian Peninsula was set up, and, and different the um, voting system. Yes, and and just the the way that it was divided up into districts, and your uh, you voted according to your your district, your deme, instead of your family, so that undermined the loyalty to the family name, and there was a whole lot to it. But in the in essence, it was this one guy who was trying to undermine the political power of the rivals that had exiled him, and put through these reforms that you know through a a great number of steps in a couple of years ended up being the foundation of the Athenian democracy. It is interesting you mentioned the year 508 BC mm -hmm. when it was 509 was the year that the Romans threw off their uh, Etruscan overlords That's right. and, and set up their republic. That's true. That's right. It was Just a year It was the year before, yeah. I mean, they may have known about each other doing that or influence, I, I, actually I can't speak for that. At that point, historians may know that. Because I'm trying to think if Greece was colonizing, because I know the uh, the southern portion of Italy was known as Mag Magna Grecia because uh, of the Greek colonization, but I'm trying to remember if that was more in the 400s or in like, the classical Greek period. I think it was slightly after this time that we're talking about. It would be slightly. Um, yeah, so they, I don't and know. They, and they set up the colony of Paestum, mm -hmm. south of Naples, which yeah. is often overlooked as was a major Greek uh, community and trading. I mean, the Greeks were all about trading. Oh yeah, exactly. And, and so I don't know how much contact the Greeks and uh, Proto-Romans, I suppose, would have had at that point. But I know it wasn't long afterwards that they they started to have a lot of contact with each other as the Greeks began to colonize the Mediterranean, and especially if you're looking at Italy, the sort of the 
the the arch of the foot they were in in that area quite a bit and around the heel um but yeah that would have been just after this period of history i think i think um if we're wrong please correct us uh, reach out to us (laughs) the concept of democracy which we almost take as for granted in the west right the way to do things. It was a revolutionary idea. Yeah, it, it was. Uh, that's that's. You're going to trust the people to make those decisions, <laughs> right? I mean, what was it? Socrates essentially said that um, you know the best argument against democracy is a conversation with the average person, or that might have been George Carlin. I get the two of them mixed up quite a bit because <laughs> I know George Carlin once said that the best argument against democracy is have a talk with the average voter and realize that half of them are dumber than that. Yes. <laughs> so, oh boy. But, See, but it, that was very. But I would argue that that was very much a political revolution. The I, shift from oligarchy to I mean, uh, democracy. Many times when we hear uh, Americans speak about, you know, democracy and the right to vote and stuff like that, and there are some issues going on right now in terms of voter suppression and stuff yes. like that. We have to remember that when the American Republic was set up in the seventeen seventies, only men with land mm-hmm. were allowed to vote. Yeah, uh, and that would have been. Uh, men of European extraction, and and to be fair, when we're talking about the Athenian democracy as well, it's you know it was the power of the people, but it was a very specific group of people. It yeah, was yeah. you know wealthy white or wealthy well wealthy males um, who were land owning and over the age of twenty five, I think it was yeah. like there was, yeah. We look at it as the you know, the birth of democracy and this great moment in human it history, which birth. it is, which it absolutely is. But then you look into the nitty-gritty details, and then you're like, it had, uh, it's not too far from... It had to evolve a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Although, if George Carlin's quote was about uh, people today, I, I actually kind of agree with it. Most people <laughs> have a difficult time keeping up to date with what's really going on in mm-hmm. politics. And sometimes, it's the only thing that, c- that can be focused on is one or maybe two issues that are yeah. current on that one. Yeah. And... Uh, well, and um, <laughs> but yeah, maybe we also work with uh, democracies that are too big. Oh, I never thought of that. I mean, there's been some people argue that when you're talking democracies of three hundred million and six hundred million and one billion, like in China, or sorry, in India, so scratch that, in India, uh, you know, they they do their best to work at it, but it's not an easy system, and it costs no. money yeah. to have elections and to run a government. I mean, the famous quote by Winston Churchill that democracy is the worst of all government except everyone else or every other type <laughs> kind of stuff. Um, it's because it's a clumsy, it is a clumsy. Yeah, that's a fair assessment. It's always going to be prone to uh, uh, you know, conflict and headbutting because mm-hmm. you can't you know, make this, get decisions made with, at the point of a sword mm-hmm. kind of stuff. It's hard to do anything quickly in a democracy as well when you've got, you know, several million people let's say who are all voting on different issues that's right it's hard to get any when when the power is with the people it's hard to expedite any any processes which i know can be a bit of a uh an issue like i i was having a conversation with uh, uh my cousin last night just about the fact that you know quite often what happens in in politics in in canada and the united states is that oh this group comes in promising they're going to do x y and z but then it doesn't get done quickly enough, so then they get voted out of power, and now these people come in, and they are going to, okay, well, we're going to finish what they had never got to do. Oh, well, that takes too long. You guys aren't getting it done, so now we're going to vote you out and just, yeah, you know. We'll have a budget review. Yeah, exactly, right? Like, there's there's all kinds of issues like that with a modern democracy. 
Um, but it's, but this topic is interesting when it comes to you know rebellion, revolts, and revolutions because I do think they probably get thrown around by most people. The terms get interchanged a lot without thinking that yeah they actually do have definitive um, definitions mm-hmm. to that, and I think the word revolution carries more. Uh, when you say the word revolt or rebellion, uh, somehow they're like soft. Yeah, softer versions of a yeah. revolution. <laughs> the word revolution, maybe because it has an extra syllable in it, just <laughs> seems to carry more gravitas when yeah. it, it means something more serious. Yeah. But uh, it, they're not as common. No, that's well, right. But I do, I do like the fact that you brought up the um, the ideological or technical revolutions as opposed to political, because like we said, those were pretty pretty monumental when we look at ancient history. So the first one being the the first agricultural revolution. So that big shift from a hunter-gatherer society to subsistence farming. And there's there's a lot of theories as to as to why that happened, but there's no you know definitive answer, of course. Um, one of the main theories that I've read was just that it was a it was a you know, seasonably or um, climate wise, it was a very good time in human history. So we're talking about ten thousand BC, so about twelve thousand years ago. In the Fertile Crescent, there's evidence to suggest that um, there was just a plethora of wild wheat and grains that were growing up around that time. And so... The, well, we have evidence there was beer. Yeah, exactly. Right? That must have been <laughs> worth the revolution. <laughs> but there's a, one of the prevalent theories is that, you know, since all these wild edibles were growing abundantly on their own, hunter-gatherer societies in the area didn't really need to move around quite as much as they had before. They were mm. able to start settling and just consuming what was readily available for them. And then from there, it started to get into the domestication of plants. Then you move into the domestication of animals. and The domestication of animals is a revolution as well. It doesn't yeah. get spoken as much, but... No, it's, it, it tends to fall under the same category as the agricultural revolution. Yeah. I find the two go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, certainly amongst the steppe people... Uh, around the year 4000 BC when it appears to be the real first true domestication of horses began to occur mm-hmm. that uh, that that changed their society mm-hmm. their societies structurally changed their migrations moved their actual grazing patterns changed and okay. therefore they became in contact with other people that set off a a whole motion of conflict. Yeah, because because if you're moving just on the power of your own two legs, or your, your community is, you're going to stay within a smaller sphere than you would if you were That's moving right. with. You know, you've got you have draft animals, let's say, to carry wag or to pull wagons or carts or what have you, horses for yourself and your people to ride. Well, you're, you can start to move further faster. You can start to expand your circle that way. And that'll bring you into contact with other people. What's really interesting is reading about some of this stuff, and I, I would encourage all of our listeners to look into some of this. Um, the website, just history.org, has a lot of really good articles That's on this. That's right. And almost everything I found for the information I have here for the agricultural revolution, as well as we'll talk a little bit about the Bronze Revolution and uh, the Bronze Age, Iron Age, um, they're all from that website, history.org. A lot of good stuff. Um, but it's interesting to note that this, like globally, this whole shift from hunter-gatherer to farming and domestication of plants and animals all happened roughly around the same time. You know, there's there are differences. You know, uh, Mexico was a little bit further behind um, the Middle East. China was a little closer to the Middle East in time in terms of time. Um, 
I know when we get to the Iron Age, Northern Europeans were actually quite far behind on that one compared to other cultures. Um, but it is interesting to see these sort of ripple effects throughout humanity. And, and these are cultures and these are groups that have had no contact with each other. But these ideas just sort of evolve roughly around the same time. You know, there is one revolution we've missed so mm. far. If you would like to know what revolution we forgot about and hear the rest of that conversation, then you will have to tune in next week for the second half of our conversation about revolutions. My name is Shane. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. Uh, please look us up on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, please like and comment on our stuff. If you have suggestions for episode topics you would like to hear, uh, quotes that you might be familiar with and you would like us to discuss, or historical figures you would like us to talk about, uh, please leave us a remark and we'll do our best to get to that. Um, we have a YouTube channel that's going to be coming shortly, so we'll let you know when that drops. But in the meantime, thank you very much for your support. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week on Ancient Answers. Mm -hmm.